Does the Bible promote the poor treatment of women? There's no question, throughout history, women have been treated poorly, and the Bible doesn't sugarcoat this. In episode 20, The Consequences of Sin, I gave the Bible's answer to why women have been treated so poorly. In that episode, your husband will rule over you. One of the consequences of sin is the bigger one of the species, most always the male, now with a sinful, selfish nature, will push down and abuse the weaker one. In word pictures, the Old Testament theme I taught my students was, guys and gals are gross, but God is gracious. There's no question, in human history and in the biblical narrative, women have gotten the short stick. To answer this question, first we need to understand much of what we read in the Bible is a description of how women have suffered in the wake of sin. That's both individual women and women in society. Episode number 12 is critical in understanding the answer to this question. In that episode, I taught about the interpretive principle, description or prescription. Is what's being reported describing what was or is what's being reported prescribing for us what should be? I believe the vast majority of the Old and New Testament is describing what gross sinful people have done regarding the care or abuse of half the population made in God's image, women. If we're looking for prescriptions for how women should be treated, I suggest we back the tape up before sin and its consequences hit our planet. That's described in Genesis chapter 2. We looked at this in episodes 15, 16, and 17. Here's a quick bulleted list of God's prescription for men and women. First, man alone was inadequate. God said, it is not good. It's incomplete. We were told woman was created out of man to answer back to, to complete his incompleteness and to be the helper he needed to make him complete. We were told the first woman was taken out of man, and since then, every man has come out of a woman. God informed us it was to be one man glued to one woman for life, an exclusive covenantal relationship. God appointed them together to be rulers over creation. And we were told, here in this temperate climate, between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, they were running around in their birthday suits, naked, and more than that, metaphorically naked, transparent, fully revealed to each other and to God, and unashamed in it all. That, folks, is God's prescription for male and female, for men and women. But that's not what we find reported in the Bible after Genesis 3. What we do find is a gross, male-dominated narrative. A narrative that describes men, even the main characters, with more than one wife. Some, many more. It describes fathers, like Lot, putting their daughters in jeopardy to protect their guests. You can listen to that one in episode 27 if you have the stomach for it. Or Jephthah, the judge, making a stupid, rash vow, which likely cost his only daughter her life. That's in episode 50. We see men like Onan in Genesis using a woman for sex, but not giving her the main blessing women had in those wretched times, children. 
We see women having to prostitute themselves simply to support themselves when not cared for or abandoned by their men. And we see sons reported in the family lineage, but in some cases, no daughters reported at all. Gideon and Ahab were said to have 70 sons, but no daughters are reported. That's proof positive. The ladies were left off. And then we get to the back of the New Testament, where there's teaching that seems to lock women, even Christian women, down to certain roles and functions. We're going to get to that one in the next episode. But despite the yuck toward women we see described in the Bible, my students that I take cover to cover in the Bible generally don't have this question. Does the Bible promote the poor treatment of women? You'd think they would, but they've wandered across a whole bunch of ways God through Scripture begins to restore the role, value, and dignity to what was intended in creation. I want to give you just some of the things my students have discovered in our cover-to-cover overview. First, God provides for divorce in Deuteronomy 24. This is striking since in Genesis 2, God's pattern in creation, it was to be one man, one woman glued together for life. But God tells Moses it's necessary for the protection of women being treated badly in that culture. God was saying to husbands, you can't just dump your wife, find another one, try her out, and then take the old wife back. You've got to make it legal and official. This woman needs to be protected. Paul in the New Testament adds a second reason for divorce. That is, if a man abandons his wife. In Deuteronomy 22, God adds protection for women regarding rape. If a man and woman are out in the middle of nowhere and she claims to be raped, he is to be put to death. The presumption is she's telling the truth, that she screamed for help, but in this isolated place, no one could aid her. In Genesis 38, I've already mentioned Onan. He was the guy supposed to marry Tamar, his dead brother's wife, who was childless, and to give her children. We're told he enjoyed her physically, but he refused to complete the act. And God's response for using a woman for enjoyment rather than treating her with honor and moving forward with responsibility, God takes his life. In Numbers 27, a man named Zelophehad has only daughters, five of them. At the end of Numbers and in Joshua, they'll be dividing up the land God promised to the Israelites. Zelophehad's daughters come to Moses and ask a question. Hey, we don't have any brothers. Why can't girls inherit property? God seconds the motion, saying to Moses, Yeah, why can't they? Ownership of property by women, that's a big step forward, and perhaps unprecedented. We also meet many strong women and heroes in Scripture. In the middle of the cesspool of judges, we meet Ruth. She and Daniel get my vote for the most impressive characters of integrity in the entire Old Testament. Then we meet Deborah, the judge in the book of Judges, a shrewd leader, and Jael, another woman, who ends up assassinating Sisera, the Canaanite leader who was oppressing Israel. In Samuel, we meet Abigail. This insightful woman stops an angry David the future king of Israel in his tracks, and through her wise counsel, saves his reputation. 
In 2 Samuel 20, we meet a wise woman of the village of Abel, this civic leader, wondering why the city was being attacked, was told a man named Sheba was inside and he was a wanted man. She comes up with the immediate solution. She tosses his head over the wall. Situation solved. We meet the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon in 2 Kings. She's one amazing lady, wise, wealthy, a leader. It reminds me of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher's meetings when I was a young man. In 2 Kings 22, we meet another shrewd woman, Huldah the prophetess. The situation is King Josiah and the country is in a bad way. They've just found the book of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and Josiah realizes we've really messed up. Find me someone who can guide us, who can counsel us what God wants us to do. Who do they find? Huldah, the prophetess, and she guides them wisely, speaking for God. In the book of Esther, we meet the woman, Hadassah, renamed Esther, who saves the entire Jewish race by her unique position in the court and by the wise way she guides the situation. Then in Proverbs 31, we're given a picture of a virtuous wife. You just need to read this description. It describes a strong, modern woman. This elevating of women, this restoring them back toward the prescription in creation, continues in the New Testament. In the first book, actually, the genealogies that start Matthew, four women are listed in the genealogy of the Messiah. No one would expect women's names in that Jewish genealogy. Before Jesus' birth, we have two women, Elizabeth and Mary, full of the Holy Spirit, speaking worshipful words and even prophetic words over the Messiah. When Jesus starts ministry, women are named as funding the mission of the disciples. When Jesus is accomplishing his mission there on the cross, one of the seven statements he's able to make when he lifts up on the nails and takes a breath is to care for the needs of his mother standing before the cross. At his resurrection, the gospel writers list women as the first eyewitnesses. That, too, is extraordinary. In that culture, women were not considered credible witnesses, yet God intentionally makes them the first eyewitnesses. As we get to the book of Acts, Paul on his second journey picks up Timothy. Timothy becomes his right arm and the closest thing Paul has to his son. Paul says later, I've got nobody who comes even close to this man. And Paul tells us why. His mother, Lois, and his grandmother, Eunice, these godly women were his mentors. On the second missionary journey, we meet Lydia in Philippi. She's a businesswoman, and she houses and supports Paul and his team on the missionary journey. A little later in Corinth, Paul is joined by Priscilla and Aquila. They become dear partners in ministry. The interesting thing is, Priscilla is named first. That too is extraordinary, and it almost certainly means she was the stronger leader of the two, the spokesman. We're told Priscilla and Aquila are also responsible for mentoring another heavyweight evangelist in the New Testament, Apollos. And then in Paul's letters, where we get the bulk of our doctrine for how to live our 24-7 lives as followers of Jesus, Paul makes some striking statements. 
He says, men, you can't be a leader if you're a polygamist, one wife only. That takes us back to creation. Further, he adds, you should love your wife as your own flesh and be willing to lay down your life for your wife. You should view her and treat her as Jesus views and treats the church. Does the Bible promote the poor treatment of women? Well, it certainly reports the poor treatment of women, but my students would argue it consistently pushes against gross guys in a gross guy-dominated world to move women back toward what God intended in creation. While that question doesn't particularly bother my students, there is one related question my students do have. Most of them attend churches that do not have women as elders or pastors. So they ask, we have women leading our countries and our major companies. How can churches justify not having women lead in the church? Spoiler alert, some churches justify it mostly on other things said in the letters of the New Testament, and specifically the writings of Paul. We're going to look at Paul's writings, and I'm going to try and give an answer to that question. Why some churches do and some churches don't have women pastors and leaders in our next Bible questions.